Support for this podcast is provided by Cressa. Cressa is the occupier's champion, the world's premier corporate real estate advisory firm, exclusively serving startup businesses and major global organizations alike. As a Portland pillar for over 25 years, Cressa partners with its clients throughout the entire project lifecycle, from workplace strategy and discovery through the deal transaction and project management delivery of space. Cressa partners without conflict and applies integrated expertise to make your business better. Go to cressa.com Portland to connect with the Portland advisory team. From that cast creative, I'm Dan Bruton, and this is the PDX Executive Podcast. A show where I talk with inspiring leaders who are shaping the future of Portland, Oregon. Every week, I sit down with business executives, startup founders, and community leaders to dive into their career journey and get insights into the impactful work they're doing in our slice of the great Pacific Northwest. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to PDX Executive Podcast. We're back with another new episode and I'm very excited to have my next guest, Rakaya Adams, who's the Chief Investment Officer for Myers Memorial Trust. And you know, we Rakaya and I connected a couple of weeks ago and I think it's going to be a really good conversation about the work you know Rakaya does, but the broader kind of community here in Portland and Oregon. So, Rakaya, welcome. Thanks so much for doing this. Glad to be here, Dan. I just before we started, I snarked down a late lunch. So <laughs> I hope that my voice is clear after eating so much late in the afternoon, but I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, no, I mean, that's one thing when we're all on endless Zoom calls, I find myself sneaking in somewhere to eat or get some water when we can, right? Right. So, um, well, maybe a good place to start. I think I would love just to learn more a little bit about you and your, your role there. So I know that's always a kind of a broad question, but love for you just to give a little uh, background about yourself. Sure. Let me tell you about Meyer Memorial Trust first, and then I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit about me. But Meyer was created when Fred Meyer, the grocer, left his estate to the people of Oregon. Uh, he was married when he died, but his wife had her own fortune, and uh, she went on to support the University of Portland's so Child Center and the investments in North Portland were his wife's passions. But um, he left um, the grocery store business and a lot of real estate uh, for the benefit of the people of Oregon and provided relatively little direction about what we should do. Over the years, we sold the, the grocery store business and a lot of, and almost all the real estate. And that money went into a pot um, in about 1979. Okay. And in the ensuing 40 years, um, the portfolio has grown uh, quite a bit. And we've given away about as much as the endowment is worth today, which is about a billion dollars. Wow. So over that period of time, um, we've earned all that money, went back into the community, and the endowment still continues to grow because of good management. So that's how Meyer Memorial Trust was born from Fred Meyer. Fred Meyer was an immigrant to the United States from Eastern Europe um, around the turn of the 20th century. Mm. And uh, he settled in Portland and started peddling food, uh, like fruit on the coast. So he was basically a fruit peddler in the beginning. And that morphed into what most people know as the Fred Meyer grocery store today. We sold the grocery business to KKR before they became barbarians at the gate. Um, <laughs> and it was the proceeds of one of the very first LBOs or leveraged buyouts uh, in the country was the purchase of the Fred Meyer grocery store line. Interesting. And what most people know of as Kroger today is really, is really Fred Meyer. Right. Yeah. It's such an iconic local brand. You know, I grew up here and of course, and I didn't know, 
I honestly didn't know that full connection. So thanks for kind of giving that background. Yeah. So Fred Meyer was super generous. He loved uh, Portland, Oregon. Um, throughout its existence, the, the trust has served different parts of the region. And sometimes it includes uh, Southwest Washington. Sometimes it includes cities and towns along the Idaho border. But it's always been uh, focused on Oregon. Mm. Um, and I am a Portlander, fourth generation Portlander. And I grew up in Northeast Portland. My mom's first job was at a Fred Meyer store that uh, was called the Walnut Park Fred Meyer, which would, which would have been the intersection of MLK and Killingsworth. Mm. When I was growing up, that neighborhood was called Walnut Park. After it was gentrified and Black folks were pushed out, it was renamed Alberta Arts, but it had it had a name before mm. um, it was changed. So she worked in that in that uh, grocery store. It's where the police precinct is now. Okay. And Killings, that was a Fred Meyer. Um, so. Uh, my mom worked there, and over the years, I certainly benefited from the grant making that uh, prior generations of people who worked at Meyer made into the community. Meyer helped support SEI as it grew from a grassroots organization to huge community service uh, uh, business it is today. They supported boys and girls programs. There's a boys and girls center on, on MLK between Killingsworth and Alberta that I played at. Um, so I benefited from all of the grant making and the wealth sharing, and yeah. it's such a privilege to come back in a professional capacity and manage that pool of money. Yeah. Did, now, did you leave for school and come back, or have you always been Oregonian? Because I love that connection. I mean, that's really special. Yeah, I did. I did leave. And I left at 17 when I went to college and said, I'm never coming back to this one horse town ever again. Um, <laughs> so when I grew up, words. Yeah. yeah, I know. Um, growing up here for me was this, this seemed like a kind of a sleepy town and I, and I wanted a more vibrant place. I wanted a place that had more African-Americans. I wanted a place that recognized the contribution of African-Americans. I wanted to, to disclaim all of the things about Portland that sort of uh, makes it charming. So went to college uh, at Carleton College, uh, stayed in Minnesota for four years. And then after that, uh, went to Stanford for law school and practiced in the Bay Area for almost a decade. And then I went back to business school at Stanford okay. and from there moved to New York City. And I moved back to Portland from Harlem, which was quite a quite a transition for me. But I stayed away for 23 years, a little wow. more. And so did you, I mean, I'm really interested in digging into this if you're open to sharing about coming back because, you know, with your experience and education, you could have gone anywhere in the world. And you, of course, you were in New York. And so was coming back for the job, for the family, wanting to make an impact here, some of those things you left for initially, or I'm curious. No, I want to try to be as honest with you as possible. Yeah, do. I, I don't want to sugarcoat the truth. I always feel like people package up their decisions and in hindsight to be so rational. It wasn't anything that rational for me. Um, somewhere around 2010 or 2011, we sold the hedge fund that I was helping to run. I was in the C-suite of a hedge fund. And those were really difficult years from 2007 to basically 11. So I lived dog years um, in that capacity. Um, but we, we sold it and I had a non-compete and I needed to be be somewhere else for a little while right and when i left portland at 17 i really never came back for more than a few days and i felt like my mom was nearing retirement and 
I had to take a break from finance in New York anyway. So I thought, well, I'll just, you know, rent an apartment in Portland and spend a few months there and see what I think about it. And I'm a runner and I, I came home and I remember it was fall and I was trying to get out of New York before the winter came because that winter just is no joke. Yeah. Uh, so I came here in the fall and I remember going for a run in Forest Park and the smell of Portland in, 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 the, in the early fall when the leaves have fallen and the smell of the hummus leaves turning back into fertile soil and the pine needles falling in the rain smell, you know, that Portland smell. Mm -hmm. Um, in New York, I would run from Harlem down sixth Avenue to battery park back up to Harlem. And that was barely 11 miles, maybe 12 miles. And you can only go around New York you know, central park so many times before you kind of lose, lose your mind. And I would sometimes take the train North to, um, the cloisters. I don't know if you know New York well, but I would take the train North to cloisters and run back down to Harlem. But in any event, all of those runs were very urban runs. Um, even if I went to the Hudson Valley to run along the river. It still yeah. was, was pre-urban. Um, and so I did that run in Forest Park and all of a sudden I was transported into like Narnia for runners to have, you know, tens of miles along the crest overlooking Portland, running safely, feeling safe as a woman runner at twilight. It just, something about that experience just hit me in the chest and made me realize that I wasn't a New Yorker. Um, and that I'd spent so many years running away from being a black Oregonian that all of a sudden it just hit me in my chest. Mm. So I felt more environmental stewardship. I felt more connected to the smell and, and the, the kind of texture of the city. It, there was no intention to come back here or to make an impact. It really was that I was pulled back by the scent of fresh air and the taste of clean water. Um, just, just all the sensory touches you have with the city. Like if you leave Portland and you go to a place like Tucson or San Francisco, yeah. it's a really different sensory experience. And so that, that's what got me, um, that's what hooked me. So that six months turned into a year. And at the end of a year, I just wasn't looking forward to going back to my lifestyle of working all the time and living in a, in a, in a, in a really formal yeah. urban environment. So it was really that it was the natural setting that pulled me back. And then once I was here for a few months, what became clear was that during the ensuing 20 years plus that I was away, I became authoritative. I became kind of powerful in a way that it, I don't want to seem immodest, but I kind of take up, I take up space that lawyers and middle-aged ladies who do things like we just take up space and there were a few community meetings that I walked into in my mom's neighborhood in Walnut Park where she needed help. And just walking in the door, I sort of changed the power dynamics of the city or some neighborhood association trying to jam old black ladies into something they didn't want. And all of a sudden, all of the years of education and work kind of clicked. It clicked for me that just being present, I could change outcomes for my mom and her neighbors. And that began a slow process of accepting a role in, in the city that I did not have in New York. I didn't have in San Francisco, certainly didn't have in Minneapolis. In those places, I was seeking Black cultural identity. And here in Portland, I feel like it's in me. I don't have to seek it out. It's just... Yeah.
Yeah, it's here and wherever I am is the blackest part of the city. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that. I mean, it's really powerful to, I know it's hard to probably to reflect back, but to come back to your, to home is, yeah. um, and again, you can say you're, you're one of the f- few true Portlanders, as we all know, is like, uh, it's, they're harder to find <laughs> sometimes. Well, the city has changed. So in the 23 years I was away, the city picked up and I've become kind of a middle-aged lady. So I've slowed down a little and so our 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 graphs are are now um, connecting. So Portland's changed a lot in the twenty plus twenty five years since I left. Um, the other piece of it, I think, is that my identities are not as separated as they used to be. Like I used to think I was an Oregonian, period. I am a woman, period, and I am black, period. And they really were, my, my black identity was really separate from my Oregonian identity. And over time, they've, they've come, come to be one identity that isn't so easily parsed out. So that's, that's I'd say, a big, maybe a big change in maturity. Maybe, maybe it's the difference in authority and having kind of positional authority. Yeah. Um, but I feel much more centered in all three of those identities now. Well, I think it's a good point to kind of go into about how Portland has shifted and then the work, the important work you're doing. I, I know I don't want to gloss over you getting the role there, but you know, when you, when you did get into to Meyer, what were some of the things that attracted you to the, to the trust and the, the job and you really the impact you could make? You know, investing money at the, at the billion dollar plus scale People think it's about money, and it's really not. Money is just a measure of, of energy. So I think about the the Meyer Trust, the, the the billion dollars that I manage on on behalf of the people of Oregon. I imagine that that billion dollars was earned with small families and single mothers coming into the Fred Meyer grocery store, paying for things that it took hours and hours to earn the wealth to generate. So every dollar is lots of labor, right? There's lots of energy with earning dollars. And then when you transfer that energy in the form of currency to a store clerk to buy sugar or flour or whatever, we think that the energy of the wealth goes away, that it dissipates, but it doesn't. And I think of that that, that energy continuing through the accumulation in the, the, the grocery store business and then ultimately ending up in our endowment. And somehow we think that when people and institutions get wealthy, the, the wealth, the money itself becomes inert, like it doesn't carry the energy it took, literally the human energy it took to generate the capital. And so what, what I was attracted to was a chance to have this giant pile of energy that I could direct in the ways that I, I think are important um, in my prior job, which was probably my favorite job ever running the yeah. division at the standard. Um, it was great, but it was the investing was so tied to the insurance business that I couldn't be really flexible with it. Mm. But with this pool of money, which is smaller than I managed at the standard, it was much more flexible and open. And so what it allows me to do is just like focus energy on ideas and people and concepts that are important. And that's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to be able to talk about wealth and financial wealth in particular in a way that wasn't about money because mm. money is, is a kind of vulgar approximation for what you're doing. Again, when you're thinking about a billion dollars or in the case of the state pension plan, a hundred billion dollars, 
that's not a dollar at a time. That's choosing what matters and where we're going to push the future, what direction we're going to push the future into. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted the positional authority to talk about the future. And that is all investing is, is, mm-hmm. is controlling the discussion, having the, the power to send energy in the direction that you want the future to go into. That connection, you know, like you said, the people at the cash register, the dollar per dollar, I think is so you know, valuable to kind of remind the people of that, right? So, right. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people think that, that again, uh, money or currency is just an abstraction of energy, right? That's all it is. We need some universal adapter for energy, right? And we think that money, when it begins to accumulate, not only loses its energy, but its moral purpose. Mm-hmm. And I disagree with that point of view. I think capital has a moral purpose to serve humanity, not just extract from humanity. And before I was in the seat, I could just think about those ideas, maybe halfway talk about those ideas, but now I can fund them and uh, begin to kind of chip away at some of the more vulgar perspectives we have about capital and about um, capitalism, which I think are totally wrong. I love that phrase, capital having a moral purpose that we, you said, Mm -hmm. I love that. Uh, Well, you know, because there's so many things I want to talk to you about. I I think one of the things that really stuck out when we talked a couple of weeks ago, just is about, you know, the pandemic, you know, I was talking about my kids and you said, you know, you're really interested not necessarily how is it going to affect them right now. We all know they're going through struggles and, but as a generation and kind of from an investment lens, the ramifications of that, and yeah. you kind of brought up, so I would love to kind of pick that up, the conversation up, if you're willing to kind of talk about that. Yeah. It's so fascinating that people again, think that investors are focused on money because we're not. And every time we teach a child to read or we, vaccinate a child for smallpox or polio, those are some of our most valuable investments, right? To, to, to educate a child is to generate economic activity uh, and, to, and to create moral purpose. And educating children has a cost, right? And vaccinating children to make sure they're healthy has a cost. And it's interesting that we think about education and child health as um, a social service when in fact it is the most elemental form of investing. So I think about children and population level detail a lot. Um, can you hear my husband is vacuum cleaning in the background? I can't hear it. No, that's all right. Of course. <laughs> no, that's it's fine. Um, so, so as we look out on what will happen to the second grader today, Right. People think of second graders as, as being promoted to the third grade and then going beyond that to middle school. But to investors, the second grader today in 25 years is going to be a unit of economic production. And so the question is, will that unit of economic production be advantaged or disadvantaged as a result of this year or two? And if there are advantages, what are they likely to be? And what we saw following the Spanish flu pandemic of the 1919s and 20s Uh, Kids, in particular uh, non-urban settings, were outside of the classroom for at least a year. And what they did was go into the countryside. They had applied math lessons. They tinkered with machines. And and out of that year of 
of applied thinking earlier than we expect most kids to get there, we saw massive growth. Now, part of it was that the United States was in a dominant financial position and we were imposing our view on the world and there are all these other boosters. Right. But if you if you take out the economic and imperial imperialistic outcomes, just look at the educational outcomes. What we essentially did was take an elementary school kid and said, hey, kid, I need you to, to start to think in a multidisciplinary way as you play in the backyard, right? Even teeter-tottering is a form of, of math and physics, right? And it accelerated some cross-subject matter thinking that played out over the next 20 years. And I think we're seeing that with kids, except for in this case, we're injecting technology into their interior spaces, into their intimate spaces. And so I have a hunch that in about 20 years, something, some massive change, some massive connection between the human interface and our technology technology interface, we're going to have some jumps in technology. Mm-hmm. When your second grader becomes an engineer, um, and my hunch is that it will have something to do with implants or augmentation of human capability, because again, we've injected technology into the interiority of these young people. So I haven't even thought about it like that. I just see my son on Zoom and I'm like, I don't know about this. But, you know, as someone who who's investing and you're thinking about this, what kind of things can you do now, I guess, to when we're strictly looking at the investment side of it? I guess. Well, so there are some obvious things with education. So we're we're whatever happens in the after times education has technology has intruded into the classroom in a way that really it had not mm-hmm. yet globally. So um, we're going to begin to think about broadband as infrastructure and maybe beyond that, maybe as a human right in the same way that we think about water. So I think um, our view about uh, broadband access or whatever the equivalent of that will be, um, will be important. And so projects like SpaceX, where they're taking the rockets to you know, outer space, but they're dropping off satellites to enable affordable um, internet connection around the globe that stuff will become much easier to find. So that's the easy stuff. And then you need all the, the platforms to take the access down to the retail level. Right. Um, but I'd say longer term, we have three or four huge issues with humanity that your kids will solve for us. We're handing them a bag of rocks, but they're going to figure it out. <laughs> um, the first is energy storage. So I think this is accelerating um, investments in how we can store renewable, sustainable energy. That's our biggest problem right now. And your kid, believe it or not, reflecting light off of a mirror in a backyard to kill an ant is probably going to figure out <laughs> some, some physics uh, solution to that problem. So, so energy storage is one. The second is feeding us. We have a biology challenge, which is that we can't keep using nitrogen-based fertilizers to you know, accelerate yeah. food production. So we got we to figure it out. And again, your kid starting a garden at six and thinking about germination and fertilizer and that stuff's going to lead to innovation in greenhouse and food production. So the second question, the second issue facing humanity is a biology question. Again, I think your kid's going to solve it. The third big one is shelter. So one thing that's happening up and down the West Coast is that, again, your second graders looking out of the car window at 
people living in tents on the side of a hill in the rain and mud and snow and reflecting deeply about whether that seems moral or just, right? And we know how to produce manufactured multifamily housing. We know how to do it. What we haven't solved is the business challenge of supply chain integration to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of entrenched reasons why people gen, gen X and older will really struggle with that. Our labor force dynamics, there's some just there's some social issues that we right. can't solve. But your kids are going to solve those labor force issues. And they're going to reflect on seeing people living in, you know, really substandard conditions in such an abundant environment and solve the problem. So those are the three areas that I'm really zeroing in on. And I just based on what kids are saying and what they're doing, I can see that they're going to solve problems. And what I love this, because what I'm hearing from you is you're very optimistic. I am. And I am that way too. And I, I, I love that lens of, of solving these big problems. And I mean, as we kind of end, I think it's a good place to come back to, to Portland, you know, and, and your home and, and coming back and, you know, some of the challenges we face here and, you know, the future of, of our city and the leadership. And again, I'm very optimistic. Um, but what's your thoughts kind of where we are as kind of a community right now. So, so some of the things we need to address. Yeah. So much like investing, I'm long Portland. I'm going long Portland, I'm going short in Portland. Love it. Um, so a few thoughts about that. I mean, Portland's leadership has been a pendulum where we swing from visionary, very visionary leadership to more management style leadership where we're just maintaining what was done before. And, and, and by the way, management shouldn't be undervalued. It's important to have people who won't mess a good thing up. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think we need to, the pendulum to swing back from the managers, the people who can maintain a downtown transportation law or the bottle or, or the urban growth boundary to the visionaries who can say, what will a 21st century city look like? What will the thousand year city look like? Right. And it's going to take those kinds of visionary leaders who can describe a challenge so large that it will take many hands to solve so that we can stop wringing each other's necks and begin to <laughs> work together. So uh, I'm hoping that voters begin to promote visionaries more um, and that we reinstill some respect in, in government because th these times of, of transition and transformation are so painful and they're really painful when government isn't moderating the relationship, the relationship between people living in cities. So my first thought is that I want the dreamers. I want to hear from the artists and the creatives who can imagine a life after cars, you know, dominate the city. What, what might we look like in 200 years? Um, what, what do we care most about? We want to hear, your, your, again, your second graders' perspective. We want to yeah. hear that. So, so I'm hoping that we move to, to more visionary leadership. Um, the other thing I think we're going to have to get a handle on is that we need to pay more taxes, period. Mm. We need a sales tax. Mm. And we need to rationalize how we gather taxes in order to have stable funding for education, early pre-K through college. We just have to fully fund um, education in the state because, again, educating a second grader through college is economic activity 20 years right. later. Right. So, so it's worth it. The last thing I would say to baby boomers if they're listening is that there's a social contract between the young and the old. The old pay for the education of young people in exchange for having their retirement paid. 
we've broken that contract. Mm, yeah. In beginning to um, to defund or underfund higher education and now basic education, we don't know how generations of Americans who've been undereducated will respond when there are more baby boomers than there are workers in the United States. So I think the, the biggest challenge we will face in the next 20 years is the reckoning with that broken social contract. And I'm not quite sure where we, how we fix it. It won't be a capital issue. It won't be natural capital, human capital, financial capital. It's going to be the contract between generations that has been broken. Right. Like, like totally broken. Yeah. I think we can do it. I think, I, think so I think it's, I really appreciate you, you know, coming on the podcast and sharing these. I think if you're up for a round two, we're going to need to have to do a follow-up because we can keep going. But what, before we go, you know, where folks, where can folks learn more about the trusts and, you know, the work you're doing? And Yeah. So the trust um, website is pretty well kept up and it's mmtmarymarytom.org. And then a lot of the more exciting work that I'm doing for the Urban Forum is at alignavisioninc.com. And I use my own name on Twitter, so I'm easy to find. Okay, great. I'm not on Twitter. I, you know, I lurk a little bit, but <laughs> it's, you know, there's, it's, it's hard, but the, uh, you gotta I'm, join. I know I'm going to, I got to get engaged back. I got to engage. <laughs> but Rikai, well, thanks so much for taking the time and, you know, just really value the work you do and looking forward to, you know, your leadership and for years to come here in Portland. A delight to meet you and I can't wait to meet your kids. I'll be looking at them. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so All much. All right. Well, thanks for your time. The PDX Executive Podcast is a production of ThatCast, a Portland, Oregon podcast agency that partners with brands to create custom podcasts. You can learn more at thatcast.com. And please take a moment to subscribe and rate the podcast as well.